Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. The troops on that I was excited about. Um, so I want to thank you for your donations with that. Um, for things coming up, um, remember, winter camp is scheduled to start tomorrow. We have some things up in the air about that. Um, I, I've been getting the message out to my staff and asking questions about what we're going to do. We're going to make a final call on what's going to happen with the schedule with that um, this afternoon because they got a lot of snow, well, a little bit of snow last night, but they're scheduled to have a lot of snow. And when you have a lot of people who come from places that don't get a lot of snow, things can get kind of sketchy. So we're trying to figure out everything with that. So if you could pray for wisdom that we will make a good choice with that, I would appreciate it. All right, so John chapter 20 is where we're this morning. And remember what we've been doing week after week. And if you're new to our class, what we've been doing is we've, well, several months ago, we started in John chapter 1 and are going through this magnificent gospel trying to understand and apply the teaching of this book. What we've been discussing is that each one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all are biographies of Jesus, but they tell the story of Jesus from a different angle. They try to emphasize some different points that maybe the other ones don't. Of course, there's overlap and and, and, and all of that, but there's some different purposes behind them. And it makes sense when you think about the dates that they were written and to the audiences that they were written to. For example, like you take the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew seems to be written primarily more toward a Jewish audience. It's an earlier gospel. It deals a lot with the fulfillment of prophecy, which would make a great deal of sense to a Jewish reader. Um, The book of Mark, I take the position that it's written primarily to a Greek audience. And with Mark being written to a Greek audience, he's going to emphasize things that would have been more compelling to Greek people. Whereas prophecy wouldn't mean a lot to someone who grew up worshiping idols. or The fact that Jesus had amazing signs and wonders and had a crowd and multitudes around him, that would be compelling to a Roman who was used to seeing you know, a full coliseum with great performances and gladiators and all of that. Well, John is written decades after those other gospels. It's written toward the end of the first century, and it seems to be writing maybe toward people who are second, third generation Christians, people who are become Christians without any firsthand interaction with Jesus. And so what John does is he lays out witness after witness, sign after sign to try to get us to believe. Key verse of the book we're actually going to be going into this morning, John 20, 30, and 31, says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John gives us a thesis statement here toward the end of his book, saying, look, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm trying to get you to believe. Now, we skipped ahead to this, and then we went back, so we kind of had that lens we were looking through as we went through the book, but it makes a lot of sense, because you see a lot of witnesses, a lot of testimonies, you see all these different signs, and about all of these things that happened are designed to get us to believe in Jesus. Well, last week, we discussed Jesus' resurrection, and you know, the magnificence of that, we, before that, we're talking about his crucifixion, everything went on there, we talked about his appearances now to Mary and to the disciples when he gathered there in the room with them and he appeared and we left off in John chapter 20 in verse 24. We read through this quickly. I'm going to read through it again to kind of lead into where we're at tonight. So if you just came in, 
We're in John 20, starting in verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So initially, Jesus had already gathered around with his disciples. They had seen them when he appeared in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. But Thomas was not with them at that time. So Thomas now shows up at this moment, and the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Is, is Thomas's? I hate calling him doubting Thomas, but he gets that rap right. Are his doubts or concerns right now valid? What do you say about him? He hasn't seen Jesus yet, and he has this concern. Is it valid? Okay, Tom says yes. Who says no? Okay, Mark says no. So with all the illusions and the teachings that Jesus talked about, you know, you tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Why would he have that kind of doubt? I, I can see that, absolutely. Um, Tom says you know, well, it kind of makes sense from a human standpoint. It would definitely, you know, make sense that regard. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. Yeah, Greg. Kind of just playing off that. Well, if you, you let me see that too, I'll be on board kind of thing. Okay. Yes. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, these disciples were overwhelmed with all sorts of things in their minds throughout all of this. Absolutely. So verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas um, with them, Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, so you're going to kind of have this miraculous appearance, um, and he stood in their midst, and he said, peace be with you, the same greeting he did previously, and then he said to Thomas, clearly he knew what was in Thomas's mind and the dialogue that went on, and he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, reach here with your, um, with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. That phrase right there, do not be unbelieving, but believing is key to this section. It leads into this next part that we're looking at, key word of the book. John, as he records this, <laughs> I imagine he's thinking, this is what I want them to see, you know, that kind of stuff as well. This emphasis that he went from belief or unbelief to belief, and that was what Jesus wanted to happen. When Thomas believed, what did he say? My Lord and my God. He recognized who he was. He went from that unbelieving state to believing. His belief then, okay, yeah, Tom, go ahead. Oh, yeah, because if you have somebody who was skeptical and they were convinced, that carries a lot of weight um, and that kind of idea. I could see that. So Thomas goes from this unbelief to believe. He says, my Lord, my God. But now Jesus plays off of that in verse 29. What does he say? Someone read it for us. Someone out loud. So you have this question that he lays out. He goes, so you believe because you've, you've seen, right? You've seen me. So when you only heard the report about me, you didn't believe. But it wasn't until you actually saw me that you did. And then he makes a statement. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Everybody who's reading this book, okay, way back even in the first century, when it was produced, when they're reading this, they would have fallen into, for the most part, into that category of that last part of verse 29. People who had not seen and yet believed. Fast forward to the year 2021, almost 2022. We don't technically see Jesus, 
but yet we believe. That's the message here for us too. Blessed are the people that even though they didn't see Jesus, they weren't there when he walked on water. They weren't there at the miracle at Canaan. They weren't there at the resurrection of Lazarus, but they still believed. Blessed are those people. Thoughts or comments? Is this an encouragement? Discouragement? What do you think? It should encourage us. Yeah, John, who is also called Didymus. What, anybody know what Didymus means? Twin. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, John. Without having witnessed, and they got Jesus' stamp of approval on them a little bit here, saying, hey, he says we're okay. We're blessed too. Because, I mean, I would imagine me from a human standpoint, I would feel like a lesser Christian if I wasn't one of the original team members. You know what I mean? Oh, I came along later. But Jesus is saying, no, blessed are you. And then back to what John says, that we were joking about this in the foyer. I think it's cool these guys get nicknames, by the way. And Thomas, who is called Didymus, which means the twin. And then you got James, who's called the less, which basically means like short James. So as a short guy, I take offense to that one. Um, but, but it makes sense. This Cliff Sabro, total random speculating here. You get a bunch of guys hanging out camping all the time together. They come up with mean nicknames for each other. So you got the twin and you got... Shorty over there. But anyway, um, so blessed are those who believe even though they have not seen. That's the point of this book. It's for those who haven't seen firsthand to still see Jesus, spiritually speaking, and to believe and believing have life. Other comments? So let's not call him Doubting Thomas. That's not nice. He, he's a searching Thomas, seeking Thomas, wondering Thomas, and later he becomes believing Thomas. And don't just pigeonhole him as a twin either, because I'm sure John didn't like that growing up either. Yes, Greg. Yeah, because how often, maybe you hear from a, a child in class, you would have been so much cooler back then to actually see Jesus firsthand. Then it would have been different. And Jesus says, no, you're blessed too. You know, blessed are those who didn't even see me and, and yet believed. Does that mean our faith is stronger? I mean, I, I, you know, you think about this. There are a lot of the guys firsthand that saw him didn't believe, but man, we, we're believing without even being there. We're believing based upon evidence. Yes. Okay, the show me state, yeah. We, we are, we're a show me people who like to have evidence and all of that. Um, but I love that statement. When he does see it, though, he says, my Lord and my God. And I think there's a lesson there for us, too, that even in our doubt, when we have those doubts, which we're all going to have, <coughs> it's okay to have doubts and wonders and all that. When our doubts are answered or sufficient evidence is presented, we, like Thomas, should be moved to say, my Lord and my God. We have a tendency to discredit the evidence or say, well, maybe, you know, whatever. But here when Thomas saw the evidence, he believed. All right, verse 30. Therefore, so now John brings it in. So after this, this account of what happened with Thomas, Thomas went from unbelief to belief based upon evidence of what he saw there firsthand, but then Jesus says, no, it's even better if you didn't see me firsthand and you believe, blessed are they. Then John wraps it up with this statement. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Jesus did a lot. If you skip all the way ahead to the last verse of this book, Okay, verse 25 of John 21. It says, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which I, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself will contain the books that would be written. John wants us to know that this is by no way an exhaustive account 
of everything Jesus did. John says, look, there's a ton that Jesus did. I just gave you a little, a little glimpse of how amazing he is. Therefore, many other signs that Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which were not written, but these, these signs have been written, which we're reading about this entire last quarter, so that you may believe, keyword of the book, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book, is to get us to believe. There's other things that, other re- things that could be written about Jesus. There could be a whole book about a biography of his early life in Galilee and, and ancient carpentry practices. That'd be interesting, but that doesn't get us to believe. Here, John says, I recorded all these for you so that you can believe because I want you to have life. Another key word of the book. And, and I love how it's laid out there for us. From a, a student of the word kind of exegetical standpoint, the fact that he tells us, hey, here's what I wrote and why I wrote it, it helps us interpret the book. Because we don't have to guess what it's about. We gonna, we're going to funnel all of our interpretations through what John said the book is about, not what you know, someone else says it's about. Thoughts or comments up through verse 31? Yes, come on. Yeah, maybe we couldn't comprehend everything Jesus did or process it, but God gave us enough is kind of what you're saying here. Yeah, he gave us enough and what we do need. Other thoughts? As you're going through this book, remember, keep looking for those words belief, the words life, because they're definitely key to this book. And I hope over the weeks as we've repeated this verse, you've kept it underlined and circled as it lays out, you know, the purpose of it so that we can believe and have life. Thomas believed, but he didn't believe based upon just what he had heard. It had to be what he saw. But we can believe even today based upon what we read and believing we'll have life. All right, chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. So I like how John kind of throws this in. He goes, oh, and after this, Jesus did manifest himself again. And here's how it went down. Verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Peter's a fisherman at his roots. A lot of stuff has gone down. You know what, let's just go fishing, right? So that's what he does. They go fishing and that's what they eat. So They're out there doing this. And they're out there at night, and they caught nothing. Kind of common occurrence. Maybe he's not that good of a fisherman. But anyway, he caught nothing. In verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus is here on the beach. They're out on the lake. And as they're coming in, the sun's coming up, maybe there's a fog, maybe it's twilight, you know, that kind of idea there. And they did not know the guy on the beach was Jesus. So Jesus said out to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Like, how's the fishing, right? Catch anything? Same kind of thing that happens today. Um, And they answered him, no, no, we haven't. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, 
and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So just like way back when early on in the ministry of these disciples, when Jesus, you know, had the miracle about casting your nets over here and so on, you hear, he says, cast your net on that side, you'll catch something. They do it, all of a sudden there's this giant haul of fish, so great a number that they weren't even able to haul it in. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, so we talked about that's probably John, right? John would have said to Peter, it is the Lord. So now they're like, okay, yeah, this has to be Jesus. Look at what's happening here, this miracle, this amazing moment. So that guy down, that silhouette maybe on the shore, you know, whatever it is, there we know that has to be Jesus. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. This scene is pretty cool right here. So most likely, the kind of the ancient fisherman kind of practice was back then, is you'd strip down to like your, your undershorts kind of thing, okay? The fish, um, most likely not naked, but think about your swim trunks kind of. And that's what you do because you don't want to get stuff all over you and you want to be agile, whatever, on the boat. So they do that. So Peter sees Jesus, but he puts his outer garment on and then jumps into the water. I don't know much about swimming, but that doesn't seem like the smartest method. But hey, if you're going to go see Jesus, make sure you got your clothes on. So Peter puts his cloak on and he jumps into the water to go swim over to Jesus. Maybe not the most practical way to get to Jesus too, because they have a boat. But what does it say about Peter? He's impulsive, and he's excited to see Jesus. And I'm not going to fault anybody if they want to dive into a lake to get to Jesus with their coat on. I think that's a good character trait to have. So he jumps on him and goes to swim to the shore where he saw Jesus. But the other disciples came in the little boat, you know, because... They have a brain to figure that kind of thing out. So they get into the little boat, and they go to shore. For they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net of full fish. So Peter jumps. I just love the, how this scene plays out. Peter puts his clothes on, jumps in the, in the water, and swims to the shore, while the rest of the guys are still hauling in the catch and, you know, batting down the hatches and, you know, rowing to shore kind of thing. And now they all arrive. And they drug there, and they had a net full of fish. So when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Jesus is already on the shore, and what's he doing? Just he's cooking breakfast, okay? He's already, he's cooking. He already has fish there, and he's got bread ready with it. And, you know, everybody, you eat a fish sandwich for breakfast, right? So um, that's what they're cooking there along the seashore. And he's got his charcoal fire there, and they're cooking this. And Jesus says, hey, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Peter goes, brings that net in, and there's a lot of fish there. How many fish? 153. I've heard weird illustrations with this. Maybe the number represents something. I don't think so. But there's a whole bunch of them. But what's the significance of it? What happened with the net? It didn't tear. Sounds like it probably should have with that many fish in it. But when Jesus is helping you there, it's not going to tear. It's a miracle. So they bring these fish in, and Peter is getting it. Jesus is by the fire cooking the fish that they 
had caught. Kind of a neat scene is unfolding here. They didn't recognize him at first, now they do, and here's Jesus cooking these fish by this charcoal fire. I heard one preacher one time bring up, by the way, that the last time a charcoal fire was mentioned was when Peter denied Jesus. I don't know if we're supposed to read that into there, but it's kind of neat when you see it lay out that way because Peter was warming himself by a small fire when he denied Jesus, and now Jesus is here warming himself by a small fire, and he's going to ask Peter a pretty pointed question here in just a second. And he does it three times, which, again, don't want to read into too much, but it seems kind of interesting, at least from a curiosity standpoint, that Peter denied Jesus three times, and he asked him three questions right here. So this scene's all unfolding. Jesus, verse 12, says to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. I think that maybe with them not knowing it was Jesus initially was maybe supernaturally guided in some way. Remember how Jesus on the road to Emmaus kind of hides his appearance, and at first people don't recognize him? There's something weird that happens with that often with the resurrected Jesus here where at first they don't recognize him and then they do. Maybe it's he's waiting to see how they react, checking their belief, or maybe even the resurrected Jesus looks different. So here he is, but they know who it is. They didn't question him knowing that it was the Lord. I imagine it's a quiet scene right now. They're probably intimidated, a little bit overwhelmed. They, they love Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. They were sad that Jesus died. They're excited that he's resurrected, but being around a resurrected person is probably intimidating, daunting, terrifying at times, that kind of thing. This whole scene has just been a whirlwind of, of activity and, and their emotions, and now they're there, and they says, hey, let's go have breakfast. Like, when you picture resurrected Jesus, it, everywhere he goes, it should be glowing lights and trumpets and angels, right? Like, oh, here he is. But no, it's, he's, he's, making, he's making breakfast. Like, it's so simple and, and, and normal, but yet amazing, and here it is. So Jesus says, hey, come, let's eat. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now, this was the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So not one, not two, but three times now they've seen the resurrected Jesus. First time, maybe they got confused. Second time, ah, oh, they were just seeing things. But third time now, he's a real resurrected Lord. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, tend my lambs. Okay, let's, let's break this down a little bit, this question. Peter, the one who, well, what do we know about, what are some amazing things Peter's done or some not so amazing things? Just give me some information about Peter. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a, a tie there somehow, absolutely. What do you know about Peter? Oh, Steve brought up Peter denied Jesus. What else do we know about Peter? He can be impulsive. What else? Passionate. What else? What are some things that John has recorded that Peter did? Yeah, cutting off the servant's ear, you know, things like that. So, but here he also dove in the water first to get to him and, and was excited to run to the tomb. So we got all that. He goes to Simon Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me 
more than these? What kind of question is that? Okay, love him more than um, fish, love him more than other people love him. I mean, all this kind of idea, but do you love me more than these? And Peter answers and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my lambs. Now, there's something here that we don't see in our English translation. Maybe yours has a footnote on it, but there is different words being used here. We've talked about it, and I know you've heard it in other lessons before, that there's different words in the Greek language for love that kind of carry different nuance to them. You have the word agape, which is a, a very strong, committed uh, love. It's usually the word we talk about when loving God. It's that word agape, okay? Real deep love, committed love. It's not usually associated just with like romance or things like that. It's it, it's that I'm going to follow you, love. I'm committed to you. I, I, I care about you. I, I obey all of that. That's the agape love, the kind of the highest one, you might say. Jesus asked, do you agape me? So do you offer this love to me? But then Peter replies with a, a strange reply, and I'm not a Greek scholar, and I there's probably lots here that I'm missing. But Peter replies with, I the Greek word phileo, we've used that word Philadelphia before, it's the brotherly love, friend kind of love kind of word. So Jesus goes, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you agape me more than these? And he goes, you know we're friends. That's kind of the vibe I get here. Jesus says, do you love me more than this? And Peter goes, well, yeah, we're friends. That's not what I think Jesus is asking. That's a strange reply. On behalf of Peter. Maybe Peter's not overthinking. and Maybe Peter's just answering it in passing. And he doesn't get the point until later. But he says, do you love me, agape? And then Peter says, yeah, we're, we're buds. We're friends. I, I, I like you, Jesus, of course. What do you think of that reply? Yes, Curtis. Normal life. So Jesus, way back when, said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But when it was needed for Peter to stay committed and follow Jesus, he denied him and went back to just being a fisherman. And now Jesus comes along and says, well, do you love me more than these? Like fish? I mean, all of this? I mean, where, where are you at here? Do you love me? Are you committed to me? Dedicated to me? Oh, yeah, of course, Jesus, we're friends. Yeah, kind of strange. Other thoughts? No, yeah, he, Peter doesn't know exactly what he's asking. He's kind of, Jesus is wanting him to recommit because it's going to get difficult here in a bit. Other thoughts. So then Jesus tells him, feed or tend my lambs. And now he's going to use sheep terminology here, uh, you know, a couple different ways. But what do you think of that? What's he talking about? Okay, so G Peter is asked, do you love me? Peter goes, I like you. Jesus goes, well, tend to my sheep. What's that about? What do you think the sheep he's talking about is? I thought there was fish there. Okay, tend to the church, the people. Yeah. It is, it is kind of a transition period. It is kind of weird. And we as human beings in time of stress do some really weird stuff sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, there's a death in the family. Better clean the bathroom. I mean, it's like it's, you've got to get your mind off of something. Yeah. 
oh, yeah, they're stuck in limbo right now. With all... No, I, I can see that. This idea of feeding or tending my sheep, Don said most likely probably like people. I, I agree with that. Um, so G, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter answers strangely, yeah, we're friends. And Jesus goes, okay, tend my lambs. And, yeah, take care of them. Probably take care of my people. Watch out over them. These disciples, and not just talking about the 12, but all the followers, they're, they're going to be needing guidance. They're going to be needing shepherding. They're going to be needing help and teaching and encouragement. Peter, you got to commit because I need you, Peter. I got work for you to do. Do you love me? If so, let's do this thing. I got people that you got to care for. But he says this. So he does it once, and Peter answers in a different way. He doesn't answer with the right word. And even from a, a modern standpoint, if you tell somebody, I love you, I like you too, you're like, what's going on here? That's a strange reply, right? But Jesus again says to him a second time. Again, like Steve said, probably a connection there to the three-time denial, too, of Peter. So he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same agape word, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I, did he say agape there? What? No, he says the phileo word again. He says, yes, Lord, we're friends. Uh, We're buds. We're, we're brothers. That's what he says. So Jesus doesn't ask, are we good friends? He asks, do you love me? And Peter doesn't answer it that way. Come on, Peter, wake up, right? What, you, you're not getting this here. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Same kind of terminology, care for the flock, care for my people. And now a third time. Simon Son of John, do you love me? Now, in English, it doesn't say that. What what word does Jesus use there? Yeah. He uses the word that Peter's been using all along. So the first two times, he says, do you agape me? Do you agape me? Third time, he goes, are we friends? Do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? That kind of terminology. So he uses the word that Peter's been saying all along. Now he asks Peter that. He says, do you like me? Are we friends? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. Peter didn't get to the level he needed to get to here in this conversation. He, so Jesus has to step it back and, and say, are we, are we friends? Are we brothers? And then Peter is grieved. Why is he grieved now with this? What do you think? He mentions it three times. You think there's something there? Yeah. John says, and I agree with him, I think Peter sees a connection to his denial. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. And three times here, he's not answering the question right. Well, the third time the question changes, but you get what I'm saying, right? He, there's a connection here. Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I like you. 
And then finally it clicks. Oh, I haven't been loving like I should. Because true love of Jesus means you are committed. It means taking up our cross and following him. It means sacrifice. It means caring for his sheep. It doesn't just mean a fair weather kind of Christian. Yeah, we're buds. I love Jesus when everything's going well, but when things get tough, I turn away. That Yes. No, and I think what we're seeing with Peter is a lot that we see with all of us in all of our hearts. I think for the most part, a lot of us have no problem with the, I phileo Jesus. I, I, I like him. We're friends. We sing songs, I have a friend in Jesus, right? And I don't have a problem with that terminology. But you know what I'm saying? We, when you're a, just a friend with somebody, there's, you're not always caught up with them. You might not always see them. But you're cool with one another. It's good to see each other. But then you go back to your daily business, right? When it comes to loving Jesus, though, you don't go back to your normal routine. It is 100% all in agape. You love Jesus and you follow him because you got a responsibility it's not when things get weird you go back to fishing it's you love him all the time now this is big and and I I was actually chatting with Wesley and Curtis earlier this week after Curtis's class on Hebrews about this because the more lately and again I go through waves in my studying and certain things will smack me upside the head and I think it's because God says you need to hear this um, the stuff that's really been smacking me upside the head lately is the radical levels of commitment and holiness that God requires of me. And it's making me nervous because not always am I radically committed and holy. And here, you know, I think I'm a lot like Peter. Yeah, high five. I like you, Jesus. But I'm not always 100% agape. I'm going to give up everything that I have, sell all my belongings, and quit my job and follow you into what I have no clue what's happening next, Jesus. Which that's what he required of his disciples. When he said, follow me, they left everything and followed him. I don't even like leaving my Amazon Prime account. And yet Jesus like says, leave everything and follow me. And then here, Peter is like, hey, I'm fishing. But he goes, no, do you love me? I think that's a heavy thought here. And it's a question we need to ask ourselves all the time too. Do we have the commitment that we are supposed to have. Questions or comments? Curtis, are you texting me while I'm teaching up here? Okay. Oh. I couldn't read it because I was busy teaching the Bible right now, but yes. (laughs) All right, John 15, verse 14. Well, he knows as a guest speaker, you're not allowed to make comments in the back because you'll be accused of taking over the class. But famous verse, John 15, 14, what does it say? Okay. You are my friends if you do what I command you. True friends do what Jesus wants, right? So Peter's not even doing that right here, tending to the sheep. Other thoughts or comments? I'll let you because you're not going to be here next week. So He's going to get to that point, and Peter's going to go on and do amazing things. I mean, oh, he has problems, but we all do, but he's going to go out there and, and, you know, that magnificent sermon on Pentecost that we preach all the time, he does that. 
He's going to get to that point. He's going to say, I will follow you. I'm going to, wherever you go, I'm going to go. That's the point we need to get to. So we need to be having this conversation in our mind, but ultimately get to the conclusion that I'm going to believe in Jesus, I'm going to love Jesus, and I'm going to have my life in Jesus, you know, as Peter is supposed to here as well. Yes, Yvonne. Oh, yeah, John, first then, Yvonne. Go ahead. So imagine what he knows about us and, and what we could get to in our life. If Peter could get to this later point here, do these amazing things, and Jesus, yeah, there were some difficult conversations, there were some probing questions, there were some uncomfortable, guilt-filled moments, but he could get to that next level. And even in our life, there's questions that God is asking of us, things God is requiring of us, some guilt-wrenching, heart-wrenching moments, but it's to get us to that next level where we can do great things for him. Yes. No, I do, and, and um, you know, even, like you said, the more time you spend in the book, and don't accuse me of being the greatest Bible student or anything like that, because I'm not always in there like I should, but, um, but yeah, you're right, the more we spend learning about God, the more we spend studying his word, the more time we spend praying, the more time we spend discussing, and all of that will help us grow to that next level. Are you stretching or hand raising? Okay. Like this kind of hand raising, or, okay, here we go. He went back to the old way. So you've gone back to the old way, you became the old Simon and not the new Peter, you're no longer the rock, but you're just the, the hearer and not the doer kind of idea, let's bring it back to that level where I, I took you previously, that's a, that's a very good point. All right, well we're going to stop right here, I appreciate your participation this morning, next week we will finish the Gospel of John and I'll have an announcement about what we're going to be doing after that, we'll go through some review, maybe we'll take a test, I don't know, we'll see what happens next week, right? But uh, I do appreciate your participation. We'll close with a prayer. Then we'll have about a 15-minute break. You can pick up your kids from Bible class. Be sure to greet people, and we'll come on in here for our worship time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Gospel of John. We pray that as we studied it this morning, that it compelled us to believe, to love, and to be committed to you so that we can have life in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.